This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hey, diggers. When we talk rock and roll archaeology, we're always asking, how does this music fit culturally? How did this artist or that act affect society and vice versa? Boy George was, is an icon. He changed perceptions. Part of the 80s new romantic scene, he got your attention with unassuming shock, but also held it with memorable songs. He was an influential addition during the age of MTV, you know, when they used to play videos. If you want to see an exciting concert this summer, I have a suggestion for you. Boy George and his seminal band Culture Club are on the Life Tour with the always fun B-52s and special guest Tom Bailey. Here is your chance to catch some of the best of New Wave. On September 22nd, they will hit the Event Center stage in Reno, Nevada. So, by all means, visit Ticketmaster or call 800-288-1833 and grab a seat or two or three for your friends. Presented by The Row and Harris Reno. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here, behind the mic, in Napa, California today. Thank you once again for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. If you'd like to help out the RNRA, um, please head over to our brand new website and click on the Support the Shows tab. You can click from there to our Patreon page and make a much appreciated donation. Or if you'd like to pick up some awesome rock and roll archaeology swag, click to our T Public link. That's rockandrollarchaeology.com. Thank you.
Today's special guest is not exactly a household name in the rock and roll world, but she is changing that as we speak. We're really proud to feature Mindy Abair today. By happy accident, I caught Mindy and her current band, the Bone Shakers, in New York City last year and was impressed. The band plays raucous roadhouse blues and their front woman was a badass saxophonist and a strong singer. Six months later, I ran into Mindy at a private jam in L.A. and was just blown away. American Idol watchers may recognize her as the featured soloist in the 2011 and 2012 seasons. Or you may have seen her out on tour with Aerosmith. Perhaps you're a smooth jazz connoisseur and know she ruled those charts back in the early aughts. Maybe it's sitting in with Paul Schaefer and the Late Show Band or uh, with The Roots on Jimmy Fallon. She's kind of been everywhere, bubbling just under the surface of superstardom. I sat down with Mindy to discuss where she's been, where she's at, and where she's going. We had a good time. We will talk lots of rock and roll, and we hit on some current subjects that are making news, like her take on the Me Too movement. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mindy Hebert. Welcome to Deeper Dinks in Rock, Mindy Bear. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, making your way up here. You know? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, cool to yeah. hang out with you. Yeah, and then you've recently made a move from uh, Southern California, from Los Angeles, uh, where you've been for about the last 20 plus years and then yeah. now uh, are living in Northern California. We won't say exactly where, but uh, <laughs> we don't want stalkers following you. No, anymore. I've been a Hollywood girl for a long time and, you know, I'm used to. Uh, you know, that grit and, you know, even though I'm not the person with a bunch of tattoos or I don't have green hair or anything, <laughs> I'm used to being around people who do. So, yeah, right. I'm up here in Northern California and it, it is a little bit of change of pace. You know? it, it is it is a bit of a change of pace. Yeah, there's definitely a Northern California and a Southern California. I know I, I was born and raised in Southern California. Yeah. Now live up here and very, very grateful to be doing so. Now, you know what? I love it. I'm, I'm very much the person who loves education and knowledge and culture and um I'm soaking that in up here. There's a lot of culture and art and uh, incredibly smart people uh, making a lot of cool techie stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I really embrace all that. So it's very different than the L.A., hey, man, I'm rocking out and I'm going to go to the beach later <laughs> yeah. and I'll see you I'm at the bar actor. after that. Yeah. So it's a different yeah. pursuit seemingly up here than than down there. But I, I'm cool. I'll be the rocker uh, yeah. of Northern California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, you're, uh, you know, welcome to Northern California. <laughs> So, Thanks. So, first question I have for you is: So, have you have you ever considered how many posters of you are on the walls of every sax playing kid? Yeah. Eh, probably a few adults uh, out in the world today. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, come on, you are kind of like the 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 goddess of sex of I our love day. That. Wow. You know what? Uh, to answer your question correctly, no, I've never considered that. Um, but I, I love that idea. And, it, you know, it's funny. When I was growing up, there were no women sax players to, you know, kind of put up on my wall. To or emulate, anything. right, right. Yeah. So uh, you had to go and invent it, huh? I had, well, I had like rock stars on my wall and stuff. Like mm. I loved Heart mm. and oh, Blondie yeah. and yeah. Tina Turner and, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I thought they were great role models as musicians and as performers. But uh, I love the fact that. Um, I probably am on a lot of different I th- walls. I think you are. You you are yeah. like the sax girl <laughs> out there. So you know what? A lot of kids come to our shows. A lot of parents bring their uh-huh. kids, and I always encourage that because I just think, you know, it can change a kid's perception of what's possible. And I'm not even talking as women, you know, or as girl musicians. It can change any kid's perception. Oh yeah. And, you know, just to see people up there playing music, whether it's rock and roll or whether it's jazz or blues or singing, playing, whatever it is, kids look at that and they they see possibility Mm -hmm. and maybe something they never thought was possible. All of a sudden they see someone doing and, whoa, you know, when I toured with the Backstreet Boys years ago, uh, I started to get just tons of emails from moms and daughters and they were like, we have never seen a woman playing all those instruments uh, on a stage like that. You know, it was bigger than life. There were 60,000 people there every night screaming and yelling. And, you know, here I was, the only girl on stage playing keyboards and playing saxophone. And, you know, it, and they were like, we're going to practice more or we're starting in the school band or we're doing this. And yeah, very inspirational. I never considered that would be something that would happen to me, but I felt really cool about it. And I felt I should, you know, be a better human being or something, you know, to, to live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you mentioned Hart and Blondie and, and, and some others. What, what is your first memory of music where it, where it became really important to you? That's an interesting question. Music was always around me. Yeah, your 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 family are musicians. I, I think yeah. your dad plays, and your I think your grandmother was also an yeah, opera. Yeah, my grandmother singer, right? was an opera singer, mm-hmm. and you know the stereotypical just big girl opera singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father was always playing. I mean, from the time I was born, they kind of whisked me off, and I. I was raised on the road with his band. Oh, okay. So it's like we didn't So even... you were just always around it from oh, yeah. your it, earliest memories. It was everything that mattered, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I was just, I'd watch my father's band and just sit there as a really small kid. And then when we got off the road, my dad started putting together rock bands uh, that would tour around. So he'd put together probably eight rock bands a year that would go and tour, and I'd just sit in their rehearsal studios and watch them and, you know, kind of be taken by what happened and and how they rehearsed songs and what they looked like. And it was just so cool to me. So music was always something that was just my normal, you know, probably if your dad's a fireman, uh, you're like, Ooh, I probably want to be a fireman. I mean, that's what you do, right? Yeah. 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 When you're, when you're young. Yeah. And you look up to your dad, you always say, Oh, I want to do what he does. Right. 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 Well, it was just fun. It wasn't even what he did. It was what everyone around me did. I was always around Mm. those bands or I'd go over to grandma's house and she'd be sitting there playing piano and, you know, drinking her iced tea and singing arias. And, you know, how crazy is that? Right. So, you know, at a very young age, it was just, 
just something that was normal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I really loved it. And what's funny is my parents never pushed me into it. They never asked me to play an instrument. They Do never... you have siblings? I don't. I oh, was... you're an only child. Okay. I'm an only child. Yeah, I was born on the road and... Uh, I guess one kid on the road was enough of a pain in the ass that, you know, it's probably right. enough. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but it was always important. I mean, I was that kid that would sit there, well, like all my other friends and watch MTV all day and, mm-hmm. you know, just go, wow, that just looks fun. I want to do that. I totally right? want to do that. I want right. to be like Tina Turner and sing rock and roll and mm-hmm. strut around in the lights and like, you know, have fun and sweat and, mm-hmm. you know, just be out there creating stuff and, and emoting. Like the whole thing just looked really cool. Oh, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> me, this, I still fall in love with it. every time I see it. I yeah. just go, wow, it's just... It's it's great expression, uh, the ability to okay. get up there and just let it all hang out, as they uh, they used to say. Yeah. So so why was the saxophone special to you? Um, how did it speak to you as a young girl? You know, I had watched my father play saxophone uh, growing up, and uh, he was that guy that um, I mean, his whole band was really fun. It was really high energy, but he'd go out with a saxophone and, and he was that guy that you've totally seen, you know, knocking his knees together and shimmying and shaking and getting in people's faces and walking the bar. Right, right. Yeah, total showman. He was a goofball. And uh, so I always looked at that and went, oh, well, that's what it is to play a saxophone. So in fourth grade band, I was lucky enough to have school band, mm-hmm. fourth grade band are you know, band teacher Ann Reynolds put all the instruments out on the ground and she's just like, walk around, check them all out and uh, whatever you like, take it back to your seat and we'll learn how to play it. And I walked around and, you know, talked with a few people and looked at stuff and poked at stuff. But I just kept going back to saxophone. It was loud and it was fun. And I had in my head, well, if I play saxophone, I can probably have as much fun as dad looks like he's having with that band. Uh So I'll try saxophone. And uh, I got to say, it it really became a part of me. Like it it just became something that when I played it, I I felt special. And I felt like I connected with it for some reason. It, It was like an amplifier for me. Okay, right away. I mean, it just felt right in your hands and... You yeah. just uh, gravitated to that, and that was it. I liked it, and yeah. I and I would practice it, mm-hmm. and I and I, I liked the expression of it and everything. It mm-hmm. was, it was, uh, yeah, it was just fun for me. And I think you know when you're that age, when you're young, and and you're just kind of trying to, you know, find something to do and find something to have fun with, whatever. Yeah, it became this this way that I I looked at myself as a musician. Like it, it made me special. It gave me something that was me. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, some people go into art or, you know, whatever yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. Saxophone was my thing. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it was just uh, how I expressed myself. Yeah. And you still have that love today. It's obvious when you play. Uh, yeah. For anybody, get out there and watch Mindy. And, you know, she uh, <laughs> she definitely loves the saxophone. So Well, at this point, it's been a lot of years. So it's like uh, I feel that the instrument has become one with me and that's an extension. Yeah. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. an extension. And, mm-hmm. and people say that they can see that when I play, but mm-hmm. on, on this past record, I wrote this song called, I love to play the saxophone. <laughs> and the guys in my band laughed hysterically when I brought them this song. They're like, 
oh my God, it's this tongue in cheek little, you know, almost like children's song that I love to play the saxophone. Yay. Uh, and they just laughed and they're like, you know what? If this becomes our hit, we're going to kill ourselves. <laughs> but we really like it and, and we should do it. Uh, but oh my God, this is just so, you know, <laughs> this is so you. It's it's this just cute little ode to my love for my saxophone. Right. <laughs> all right. All right. Crazy question time. So yeah. do you dream about the sax? No, no. You've, have you never dreamed about it? No. Really? No. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it's not that crazy. And, you know, <laughs> people bring me like articles of clothing with saxophones on them. No, no, I don't want that. I don't oh, have, yeah. I don't have oh, saxophone oh, pins. Okay. I don't have well, yeah, I can like see that. that would be like the Christmas present to get Mindy uh, and birthday present and everything. Yeah, yes, none yeah, of that yeah. stuff. No, please. That's <laughs> I'm not that person. Like I love to play it. It's it's uh, you know an extension of me. But um, yeah, I have them hanging on the walls of my house because I bring them down and play them. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. These, these are actual playable. Yeah. They're 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 just not art that's sitting on the wall. Yeah. 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 Right. I don't have pictures of saxophones all around my house or anything. It's yeah, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And no dreaming about now. Yeah. Never a dream. I, I, most people, you know, their work comes in, anxiety yeah. or what have you. And, you know, I don't know. No, I I've had see... the dreams that like, you know, I get to the airplane and I get checked in and it takes off and like, you forgot. I the forgot sax. my saxophone. Oh, okay. So I've all had right. dreams with no saxophone. Oh, all but, right. But yeah, yeah, those are those dreams yeah. that are like, oh, oh the, no. Yeah, you know. yeah. The anxiety of like, oh man, I'm not ready for the gig. Right. What am I going to do? Right. So. Or you, you go out on stage and you've got your pajamas on. Yeah. You know, they're not even the good pajamas. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Wow. Yeah, wow. All right. <laughs> So um, we talked about a couple of uh, of musicians that you admire, but, uh, you know, our our musical tastes are usually developed in our teenage years. So who was your first musical crush? Oh, musical crush. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I listened to Top 40 Radio. That was my, you know, big thing. And my, my friends and I would buy certain things, but we were really... MTV and and radio, you know. So I mean, I really got into uh, some of the girl bands. I loved the Go Go's. Oh, I loved mm-hmm. um, I loved Heart, mm-hmm. um, and I and I loved the real high energy bands like Aerosmith mm-hmm. and Springsteen. Obviously, Springsteen had a sax player, you know, Clarence oh, yeah, Clemens, yeah, the big man, which mm-hmm. was yeah, just bigger than life. Mm-hmm. So I was drawn to that, and you know. Springsteen, all those videos back then were him live. Yeah. And I, I related to that because right. I grew up around live bands. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, that's cool. You know, I just I felt this kinship. But boy, those guys would give a pound of flesh every night, you know. And so I, I really I loved the the abandon of what I saw them do, you know, and, and heart. Obviously, Nancy Wilson was up there like rocking this guitar and, you know, kicking her foot up and she had the moves and everything. It was cool. When I finally got to play with, with Aerosmith, I looked at Joe Perry and I, I just said, you know, I know this is dorky. <laughs> I play the saxophone and sing, but I learned all my saxophone moves watching you play guitar. Right. You know, it's like you're a gunslinger with that thing. And uh, it just yeah. is like a part of you and you, it makes you so much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I, I really... I didn't have crushes on like any of the jazz people. I 
I didn't know who they were, really. I knew the Rockers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what you grew up with. Uh, yeah. It's in the house. Sounds like your dad was in rock bands. Now you're MTV generation. You're, yeah. you're, you're watching the guys that are out there. And in the 80s, there's not a lot of bands with sax players either. Surprisingly, you know. I mean, there were, you know, Duran. Really? Yeah, well, Duran Duran had Duran, tons yeah, of sax. Yeah, Tina right. Turner yeah. had her, yeah. you know, big muscly, you know, oh, uh, yeah, that's right. guy yeah. up there on sax. Um, so there were a lot of sax players back then in pop music. There are, uh, to me, many less now. I mean, some of the bands are bringing on horn sections, mm -hmm. which is pretty darn cool. Mm -hmm. But uh, back then, I mean, it was pretty prevalent. So it was cool for me to see people doing that. And I'd play along to, you know, some of the solos and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, all the Duran solos. I knew everything. By the time I toured with Duran Duran, I... I knew every solo. Like, I didn't have to learn the solo to Rio. <laughs> you just knew it. I'm like, yeah, guys, I know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's more about what are we going to wear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But to grow up with, with saxophone as, as, you know, really a part of the popular music of of that era that I grew up in, it was it was cool. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, you go to Boston and Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. Uh, and not only did you graduate, but you graduated magna cum laude. Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, obviously you thrived on campus. So Look, what was the experience like there? I'm a total dork. You know, <laughs> I, I've never I've never been. The... You've got to be a very good student. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I cared. You know, like mm. I was there. I was in my practice room. I was that person, you know, mm. that just I was uh, playing all hours of the night. I probably played six to ten hours a day mm -hmm. when I was in college. And I was all about it. I just thought, what a cool thing to be, you know, in in an area of the world, you know, in, in, in a college that everyone played music. And it was this 24-7 obsession. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't the partier. I wasn't the big drinker. You know, people tell me about their college years. They're like, yeah, I just drank the whole time. And I didn't. <laughs> I was a total dork, you know. I was playing in clubs every night, working my way through college and mm -hmm. stuff. So it's not like I wasn't a part of a scene or anything. But um, I really loved it. And I just wanted to get better. And I wanted – I felt like I was behind. Like when I got to college, I felt like all these really? people could play – way better than I could. And I knew I loved it, but I felt like I was really green compared to a lot of the people that I was starting out with. And so I, I felt like I had to catch up and that that was going to take some some work, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it was cool that I had a teacher, um, a sax teacher there, Joe Viola, who kept saying to me, start your own band, start your own band. Like, don't try and be one of these guys. Because I, I was struggling with you know, being one of 3% women at Berkeley College right, of Music the at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was 3%. 3%. That's, wow. Right? I mean, that's that's nuts. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was just wanting to gain the respect, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. of the kids I was in school with and everything. I, I dressed like a guy for a couple of years. Like, I wore men's suits to gigs and everything because I just didn't want them to look at me as, you know, oh, the cute little girl that's trying to play the sax. I really wanted that that respect. So I practiced a lot. I started my own band because my sax teacher, you know, I think really saw me struggling to find my place. Mm -hmm. And he's like, go play your own music. Mm -hmm. Go start your band 
and develop who you are. You know, don't try and play these other guys' solos and don't try and fit into whatever you think Berkeley College of Music wants you to be. And so I, I did. And I, I did my senior recital as a concert. And it was my guys. And it was my music. And it was cool. And we did some other people's music. We did like some Yellow Jackets, which is, you know, um, definitely a more fusion-y jazz kind of thing. Um, but most of the stuff was stuff I wrote and that I put together with the, you know, the guys in my band. And it, it was it was a really cool time for me to kind of experiment and be a part of, you know, different bands. I would play in funk bands and rock bands and jazz bands and 20th century uh, experimental, you know, bands. Mm -hmm. And I just, I kind of tried it all just to, to gain a depth. I really wanted that. Well, uh, it sounds like you got all of it. Uh, here you are <laughs> years later and, uh, you know, one of the first call sax players in the uh, in the industry. So it all kind of worked out. <laughs> I, I think the point is, is, hey, uh, folks, if, if you if you if you want to make it, you really got to put the time and effort into it and to develop something that's you. It's it's the point of music is expression. And, yeah. uh, you know, to express, you need to find some originality that something has to come out of you that doesn't come out of anybody else so I, I think it was good uh, yeah. good that your your teacher told you to do that and here we are now uh, years yeah. later so no I totally agree with you you, you said it perfectly it's uh, you know what we're all scared of is who we are yeah showing ourselves right yeah, I mean, right oh, pulling that the mask off be good and, yeah that, I couldn't you know that couldn't be good I, I should be like this person who's already successful but in the end uh, we all learn, uh, for better or for worse, we we should listen to ourselves and we should, you know, find that part of ourselves that maybe we're discounting a whole lot and, mm -hmm. and bring it out, see what happens. That's what creates the uniqueness. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Um, so let's see, you, you're from St. Petersburg, Florida, yeah. uh, nice and warm down there. Oh. How, how are the winters in Boston? Oh, my God. <laughs> when I moved to Boston... Uh, I got a job at a leather clothing company, of all things. I tried to get a job typing because I, I type, you know, at, back then I typed like 150 words a minute. Perfect. You know, wow. I, I knew I could do that. Um, that didn't. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so I walked around trying to find a job because I had to work my way through school, you know. And uh, this clothing company was like, well, what are you doing? I was like, I just, you know, totally didn't get a job. And uh, so they... They were like, well, we'll hire you. Okay. So I ended up selling, you know, leather jackets and coats and stuff. Good things to have in the winter. And yeah, this was in the summer because I moved mm -hmm, up there mm -hmm. during the summer to yeah, start, yeah. you know, the fall. Man, the fall hit and it was so cold. I remember calling my parents going, whoa, no one told me this was even possible. <laughs> you know, I'm born and raised in, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Winters are you know, 80 degrees. Right. I'm, I'm right. making, you know, uh, palm trees with, you know, lights around them and stuff for Christmas. Oh my God, it got 40 below zero. And I remember looking at my boss and going, how many coats do I have to sell to get one of those warm ones? And she made me a deal. She goes, you sell this amount of, you know, merchandise over the next three weeks. I'll give you whatever you want. Right. You know, you, na you name a coat and it's yours. And boy, I, I got, I did sell that. And <laughs> I, uh, I got the warmest coat, like, you know, the, 
and it was awesome. It's why I lived through college. <laughs> oh my God, it's crazy cold. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. So you uh, you graduate, uh, like we said, magna cum laude, uh, and uh, the smart girl. And I know, uh, I'm such a dork. Uh, and then you go across the country and move to L.A. Right? Yeah. Uh, what 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 was the why, what was the decision? And so, I mean, New York's you know. Yeah, it was close. Uh, It's on the eastern eastern seaboard, uh, close to get home to St. Pete and things. What made you decide that you you had to go to L.A.? New York was cold, by the way. I mean, just carrying on our conversation here. Right, right. (laughs) Let's be real. (laughs) So you were done with the cold. Get me to someplace warm. (laughs) Pretty much. Where do they make music that's warm? Oh, yes, L.A. Oh, L.A. (laughs) Hey, that makes sense. There's Mm -hmm. beaches there. Yeah. Uh, No, one of my friends in in school, Abraham Laboreal. uh, his father was a musician as well, very famous bass player. And Abraham now has gone on to be the drummer for Paul McCartney for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. Oh, oh, so, Abraham. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Abe uh, was one of my friends in college, is one of my friends. And, you know, I'm just about to graduate college. And he goes, so they asked me to put together a band for Barry Manilow. Mm-hmm. And they're going to fly us to LA and they're going to audition us. So I'm supposed to put together, you know, the quote cats from Berkeley and we're supposed to go out and maybe we're Barry Manilow's next band. And we looked at each other and went, okay, we really don't want to be Barry Manilow's next band. That's not what any of us have, have aspired <laughs> we, to yeah, necessarily. We just slaved for four years right? and now I'm going to be in Barry Manilow's band. <laughs> but, not cool. Just we, not cool. We totally did want to be working musicians. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we were just Gotta like, start somewhere, okay, right? fly us out. So they <clears throat> flew us out to Hollywood and we auditioned for Barry. And, you know, Abraham at this time had like a ponytail on the top of his head and the rest of his head shaved. He looked like a... A freaking genie, you know. Um, I had the sides of my head shaved and like hair down to my butt. Um, you know, the percussionist looked like Tarzan. We were so wrong for Barry Manilow, you know. Uh, we did not get the gig, but thankfully, <laughs> I think yeah, it was the wrong gig for all all around. Right. Um, but I saw L.A. Right. And I, you know, the people that we were auditioning next to it was a big rehearsal hall, S.I.R. And I saw it was all happening here Mm -hmm. and it was palpable. And this was where it was at. And I literally packed up everything. They flew me back to L.A. with the band. I gave every band I was playing with two weeks notice, packed up everything in my Honda Civic and I just drove. And I drove across the country, drove across the country to L.A. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to find a crappy apartment. I'm going to get a job doing something and I'm going to make my spot in the music industry and it's going to be LA, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So that, that was the big decision maker right there. Yeah. That's, <laughs> uh, I, 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 it might be fair to say that this is where your life converges uh, yeah. and you become Mindy a bear uh, here. So how, yeah. how tough was it when you got to LA? Uh, Cause now, I mean, you know, do you know anybody here? The... I, I knew uh, Abe's parents. Abe had one more year of college. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew his family and, uh, and I knew one other guy who lived here who worked for Korg. Um, he had worked with my father. But, I mean, I, I knew no one. Yeah. yeah so I I basically, like, found an apartment that was – I used to meet a lot of people know. like that, that, yeah. you know, m- a little bit more hayseed, you know, off the bus. And they didn't even have a car. At least you had a Honda Civic. I Let had me a tell Honda you, Civic. In Los Angeles, <laughs> you came with a car. You're, 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 you're way above some people that I met. <laughs> totally. I, I mean, I would, like, go – 
you're going to be in a band and you're going to do what? But you don't have a car? You're in yeah. Los Angeles, man. You ain't got this nowhere ain't New York. without a car. This right, ain't New right, York. Right. So, yeah. I just went around to every jam session. I would go through the LA Weekly newspaper yeah, yeah, and just yeah. go, Music Connection. they've got a LA jam Weekly session time. here. They've got this and that. And I, I'd go to sit in. And, yeah, it was much harder than I thought. you know. And, and I think it's hard for anyone moving out to LA because – it's, There's a click to, to start with. and Oh, yeah. Every amazing musician lives here, yeah. and they were here before you. Yeah. They've already got their people that hire them. Yeah. They don't need you. No, you're just going to take work away from them. <laughs> yeah, why hire someone else? I've got the best guy on the planet. I don't need you. Yeah. So it, it was interesting, and, and I had the extra added uh, benefit uh, of probably looking like a cheerleader. You know, so I'd go in like, hey, you know, I want to sit in on your jam. I play saxophone. And the guy would look at me like, <laughs> you like, do yeah, what? <laughs> no, 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 you're not sitting in. I'm like, come on, you know. Uh, so it, it was interesting. So I did everything from, you know, I played on the street for a few months. So you busked. And, yeah, and, mm-hmm. put out the, the case. And I was like, I'm not going to be proud. I'm going to yeah. go out. I came here to play the saxophone and sing and write songs and do my thing. Like, forget it. And I called. uh the guys in my band from from Boston and I was like, look, I'll keep us eating. If you move out here, I promise I will get us enough gigs, whether it's at coffee shops. Look, it's not gonna be sexy at first, but I will I will make you money. I will make sure you live. Mm-hmm. And so my keyboard player, Tommy Coster, moved out here. Sure enough, we played every crappy place in this side of the Mississippi. But you know what? We both built our careers and we had uh well this side la cienega but yes, yeah yeah yes. <laughs> nice <laughs> you so know la <laughs> so yeah it's like i moved in a couple of people from boston i i talked him into it mm-hmm. and you know one guy matthew hager came and he you know produced my first four records with me and you know we really became this unit that we helped each other if i got hired for something i'd hire tommy and matthew and the mm-hmm. and vice versa and it it really helped to build you know, a circle of friends that we trusted each other and we started hiring people because they weren't hiring us, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So I think it worked to my benefit because I had to create my own, you know? You were very determined. You know, I was, you, yeah. You just, you said, no way, I'm not losing. So I'm just going to make it happen one way or another. Yeah. So now you have a band, you're uh, you're, you're gigging throughout LA uh, and I'm sure you're starting to get into uh, learning about the record business and trying to make a, a record. And, and yeah. now, now we're in the music business, which is notoriously difficult, um, sure. uh, even if you come with a lot of talent in a in a big degree and all that so it's also dominated by men especially back then so i have to ask because um while there's been di- been progress it's yeah. slow and and difficult uh, how are you to, able to manage those difficult waters as you climb the ladder you know well just speaking about record labels in general you know that was a time when you couldn't put out your own record no it, it just no, wasn't no. done was, yeah i mean you, you could press a 45 or, or or you know something like that but uh, you weren't going to get anywhere without uh, having the major label yeah you. Mm-hmm. it was you you had to be curated you know uh to get into a record store you know it's not like all the indie labels now and you know you and i can record in the, the third bedroom of your house and, oh, right, right, you and know, put it put right it next to everybody else on spotify put it out right, right, right there right. and you yeah. know there's there's no gatekeepers now but at yeah. that point it was all gatekeepers oh, yeah. mm-hmm. so i i went to every 
major label, every minor label, mm. um, everything to, to, you know, to try to get signed. And I got everything from, oh, we have too many sax players to, well, you sing and you play saxophone. You have to choose because we, we can't market both of those. It's not done mm-hmm. um, to we have no idea what to do with a girl sax player. That's just like a circus act. Like, right. what the hell is that? Um, so, you know, I really, it took me a long time to get, um, kind of enough clout to get some of those people to pay attention. Um, but I got, you know, I got really lucky in the fact that I started playing for other people. You know, I, I wasn't making a living as a solo artist or as a recording artist. That, that's all I wanted. All I wanted was to be a solo artist, but all I got uh, immediately was people wanting me to play in their band. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, okay. I mean, it's I'm paying the rent. Right. And on my time off from, you know, Jonathan Butler's tour or Bobby Lyle or Tina Marie or the Backstreet Boys or Mandy Moore, whoever it was, I'd go home and work on my own stuff. So I, I look back now and I think, wow, that gave me a lot of time and a lot of uh, experience to find me and to and to create a, a depth of kind of perception of who I was as an artist fitting into their careers and then bringing myself apart from their careers. I, I really learned a lot from the people I played with as a sideman. And uh, I think it really brought a lot to the table for me to then, you know, get put a few in, record labels. Put that to, into your, yeah. your work so that you would be attractive to a record label, right? Yeah. And I, I think you were doing this for about 10 years, right? Uh, yeah. Before you put your first album out as a solo artist. So, yeah. you know, let, let me let me shift this just a little bit because did you ever feel it was hopeless and you like wanted <laughs> to chuck it in and head back to Florida or, or God forsake Boston? But <laughs> Right, right, right. You know what? I was never... I was never that person that that was like, I'm going to make it by the time I'm 30 or I'm giving up or I'm, you know, I need to be at this point by the time I'm 25 as a player or as a this. I I had those friends that we're, you know, put weird, um, you know, kind of uh, perceptions on where they should be by a certain point or whatever. I, I just really wanted to make music. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was really... Um, uh, I was okay with doing it in different ways, you know? It's like, it's okay that I went off on the road for a couple of years with Backstreet Boys or would go off with Duran, um, even though it wasn't my true north, you right. know? It wasn't exactly what I pictured. It was like, okay, I'm still making a living. Yeah. So there was always enough there for me to say to myself, okay, I'm making a living. I'm doing all right. You know, my other friends who are working like normal jobs, they're not doing any better than me right now. And I'm still doing something I love. Right. So, you know, there were those moments. I I remember uh, right before I got the Backstreet Boys tour, no one was hiring me. And there were a few months of just the phone didn't ring. And, you know, when uh, the beauty of being a solo artist is you make your phone ring. Yeah. You know, your Mm -hmm. phone rings when you say it rings. But when you're a side man, boy, no one was calling me. And I I did think um, to your question, I did think, oh, my God, what if this all ends? What if no one wants me to play in their band ever again? 
and I can't get a record deal. Oh my God, what if? What am I going to do now? Right. Yeah, and I just remember that that pit in my stomach, thinking, oh, but it someone only, only stuck for a couple of months. Someone and... called, yeah, and, and and I was off on the next adventure. So it has always worked out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and and because I think there needs to be more talk, uh, so men can hear the experiences that women have to deal with, especially from assholes in all professions. But yeah, let's yeah. face it, the music profession is known Ooh. to have a fair amount of assholes. Did did you ever experience a, a Me Too moment or, you know, know people that uh, have friends or had friends that uh, had to deal with that sort of thing? I don't know anyone who hasn't. Right. I mean, that's, that's what's sad, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I know it's hit uh, – the film industry hard, mm. you know, a lot of people in, in film and TV have gone down, Yeah, you know, and, and deservedly yeah. so. Harvey, Harvey Weinstein was yeah. in court again today uh, looking oh. at life in prison. Uh, yeah. That's, that's crazy and, to imagine, but uh, yeah. not surprising. Well, it, I, I'm just so glad the conversation is happening mm. because uh, it wasn't happening for a long time. And it's a hard conversation to have as a woman because, uh, a lot of times, if you even bring it up that someone came on to you or was inappropriate to you or, you know, it, it wasn't what you asked for, you know, uh, that that can get you fired. You know, yeah. I, I had or, people, or you'd be blackballed. You'd, you'd, right. you'd, you'd you would prove to be difficult or they would, that's usually what uh, right. what the excuse would be. So. Right. And and, you know, I had people tell me before they even hired me. You know, we don't want girls on our tour bus. It's just, it's difficult. You guys create difficulty, mm. you know? And I was like, wow, you've never been on a tour bus with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. not difficult. Yeah. I'm pretty, you know, Easy I'm going, pretty right. cool, actually. <laughs> right. um, you know, so, yes, I experienced a lot. I mean, I remember getting one gig and the guy who hired me and it was a it was a big gig the guy who hired me um you know a couple days into the tour um he came up he wasn't the artist but he was one of the representatives uh came up he's like i'd like to talk to you about the show you know and just a few things that are going on you're still new and everything and he came to my room to talk to me and he literally pushed me down on the bed and was like i see you every day you want me and I got you this gig and, you know, so I, I really, you know, I see it in your eyes that, that you, you're thankful for that and that, you know. And uh, luckily, I had a strong enough personality that I pushed him back and I was like, you can send me home right now. But this ain't happening. I do right. not want you. Right. I took this job to be a musician in this band. And if that's not what's going on here, then... Get someone else tomorrow. Send me home. Real happy. But yeah, this isn't happening. And that's happened. Uh, something similar to that has happened numerous times. And uh, it, it's it's a really disappointing place um, for women. And, uh, you know, I, I've had conversations with, uh, you know, the Recording Academy and, and different people that I um, volunteer for. Of how do we create a, a world um, in the music business that allows women to flourish and that gives women the same possibilities that men do and that somehow makes it not okay 
for guys to use it as a sexual playground, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to think differently about us, to pay us less or to think of us as, well, you know, if I get her in the band, I'll just, you know, she'll be my plaything, And, mm -hmm. you know, because that's not what we're looking for. We're looking to work and right. we're looking to make music and mm -hmm. create something amazing. So I, I, I think it's on us as women and as men mm -hmm. to really uh, be serious about taking women seriously and not trying to make us your play toys that's that's not why we're here you know that's a whole different you know ball of wax pick me up at the bar later that's that's cool <laughs> yeah, let's, we'll talk. let's talk about that <laughs> right, right, yeah right, right. but this no. this is my job this mm -hmm. is my profession and all my friends that are women they're badasses at what they do mm -hmm. and they want to be taken seriously and they deserve to be taken seriously so i applaud that that these conversations are are taking place and it's a part of the healing process and it's a part of hopefully changing uh, perceptions and changing what's okay. So I, I hope that they continue and in a really good way, in a really positive way, because um, it has to stop, you know? It and does. It, it, it's not okay. It has to stop. No, no. But uh, I, I, I want to expose uh, our, our, our listeners here to something that you're trying to do some more about uh, not not exactly sexual harassment, but just um, celebrating women women in music, yeah. and that's uh, your website, Pretty Good for a Girl by Mindia Bear. Yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about that. How did that come about? You know what? I wrote this song that was completely tongue in cheek um, called "Pretty Good for a Girl," which I think is your last single, right? Yeah i I didn't mean it to be the single. I we really looked at it as just. A funny song on the record. Oh, with and, uh, Joe Bonamassa. Uh, well, playing, yeah, Joe uh, came guitar. in and played on it, and that, I think that turned a little bit of a tide. Um, yeah, but we put out vinyl as a single, and just as soon as we put out vinyl, everyone started playing pretty good for a girl. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what do I know? Yeah, sure. well, you know, that's the public. You know, they they get to decide. You know, we just put the stuff out there, and then they decide whether it's good or not. Who am I to say? I like that song too. Um, but yeah. I wrote the song and I just, I had to write the song because people come up to me and, you know, I'll, I feel oh, like. Oh, I know. I, I, I feel like we've I, killed I know what it. You're like, say. Yeah, right. I feel like we've killed it on stage and, and, you know, just total abandon and given every piece of ourselves. And, you know, it was excellent. It was amazing. And someone will come up to me after the show and go, you know, you're pretty good for a girl. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Are you, that's what you got from that? Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, come on. And, you know, I've said to a couple of people, yeah, I'm pretty good for like a large black man. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think you're pretty good. Me. Any color, shape or size <laughs> or gender. Uh, I've seen you twice and uh, you blow me away both times. I said, Thank wow, you. wow. I mean, uh, I don't care. You could have been from Mars. You know? <laughs> so, Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. But, but the, yeah. Web, so the website, how did we get to the website? So I wrote the song and, and we recorded the song. And, and when it went to the guys and, and even bringing in Joe Bonamassa, as we recorded the song, it became this you know, fight song. It yeah. became this just <laughs> mantra, like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good for a girl. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You have no idea. You know it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that was fun. Um, and I just kind of took it too far. You know, I just thought, you know what? 
We need to lift each other up as women. Mm -hmm. We need to celebrate each other. It's not just about telling the men, hey, don't tell me I'm pretty good for a girl. It's about telling the women that too. Right. We should totally respect each other and and celebrate each other and get to know each other and be friends and be cool to each other. So I built this website, prettygoodforagirl.net, and I just celebrate women. I put up features of women that I think are cool, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, Maya Angelou, um, a total ringer, or, you know, my girlfriend who started a t-shirt company because she just makes killer, awesome t-shirts. And some of them are some mm -hmm. girl power stuff, but it's, it's thoughtful, awesome, cool stuff. So I, I put up people that I think are interesting. And I just always encourage women and girls to go there and be inspired because the more we see other women doing cool stuff and immerse in that and, and, you know, feel that power, the more we can do it. And the more we just keep that conversation going that, you know, there are a lot of powerful women and it's okay yeah. that we're powerful mm -hmm. and it's okay that we're out there doing our thing and being ourselves and breaking that glass ceiling. So mm -hmm. that's what the website's all about. Well, good, good, good. So do, do you do you have a moment that you recall um, back when you looked in the mirror and you said to yourself, wow, I made it in the music business? <laughs> well, um, you know, I have a moment that I knew I didn't make it in the music business. <laughs> but, uh, wow. Yeah, I remember when I, I moved to L.A., I'll tell you when I knew I did not make it in the music business, but I, I thought I had. Um, I got hired for uh, Fox Television mm -hmm. to do their fall, you know, commercial for all their all their television series. So it was going to be me playing sax and a guy, you know, playing trumpet and this whole band. And we were going to be, you know, the whole commercial to, you know, put the fall lineup of shows out. I was like, whoa, I'm going to be on television. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the front person. This is amazing. And so, you know, I went to the, to the session to be filmed for it all and everything. And when I got there, the guy looks at me, he goes, oh yeah, um, come right here to hair and makeup and we got to pull your hair back. And I was like, pull my hair back. I just like did my hair. It looks really cool. And he goes, oh yeah, but to superimpose Heather Locklear's head on your body, um, we can't have your hair showing. So yeah, that's, uh, oh, you know, my God. <laughs> and I just stood there and I was like, ooh, that's what's going on. Oh. I'm surprised they didn't just put a green mask over the top of your head and just say, well, don't worry about hair and makeup. Really? They so, were going to superimpose yeah, yeah. like the various the various stars, stars the of the shows, shows on you. On the different players' heads. And yeah. Wow. That was, yeah. I that was that guy got fired. A punch in the stomach. That's a dumb idea. I know. <laughs> but you know what? There have been many points um where I've thought I, I've stood on stage and just pinched myself. Yeah. Um, and, and probably the, the most, um, the most amazing one was standing on stage with Springsteen. Uh, that yeah, was, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So that, that was it. Was at the Beacon theater in, uh, yeah. in New York city? Uh, yeah. what year, it was probably just, was it, was it after, uh, uh Clarence had passed right and, after Clarence Clemens. Passed so this away. is when Bruce is kind of checking out a few different sax players. Yeah. Uh, obviously you were in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had toured a little bit with Max Weinberg, um, yeah, Bruce's, Bruce's drummer, drummer for mm -hmm. many years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I toured a little bit with him and, uh, 
he knew I was just a, a total Springsteen fan and, and a Clarence Clemens fan. I knew every solo, mm. any Clarence oh, Clemens mm. solo, you know, he knew I knew it. And, uh, and so obviously Clarence passed away, which, yeah, no one saw that coming. You yeah. just don't think a guy like that ever no, goes away. He's no. just yeah. ever long. Yeah. That guy can't leave mm-hmm. the planet. It's, mm-hmm. He's the big man. Um, so when he passed away, it was all very, whoa, what someone else could play saxophone with Springsteen? No, yeah, no, that's... that couldn't happen. I was very, uh, you know, like, no, it has to be the big band. Um, but they were doing a, a big benefit at the Beacon Theater, stand up for heroes, for war heroes that were hurt. And uh, it was a bunch of amazing people, Springsteen and um, President Clinton and John Stewart hosted it and a bunch of amazing people. But Springsteen was the kingpin of it. Oh, yeah. And so I got a call from Max and Max goes, we need someone to play spirit in the night. And, um, you you're know, it. <laughs> if, if you would be here, we'd love you to be that. And I just, I, I was like, whoa, you know, all the blood rushes out and, and you're just sit, standing there going, that's crazy. I was like a blur to the airport. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I got there and and just standing on stage with him, mm-hmm. I was such such a a, a fan. Mm-hmm. I felt like a kid. Oh, your whole life, right, right, right. And it was awkward because the big man's not there. Clarence was supposed to be there. Right. I wasn't. Right. Um, but boy, Springsteen couldn't have been more just loving and cool and amazing and gave me a hug and kissed me and was just like, that was amazing. But to stand on stage and be going into that solo, Bruce looked at me in the middle of the song, you know, he's about, he's about to give the solo to me and he's like, take it. And I'm going into the solo. And all I remember is he turned around and leapt off the stage and started, you know, walking around the chairs and just walking over people and crowd surfing basically. And I was such a fan. I'm like, Oh I'm my God, you're watching that. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching Bruce and I'm playing the solo and Whoa, stop it. Stop being a fan. You got <laughs> to pay attention, you know? pay attention. Or you're going to play the wrong solo. You know, this is crazy. So yeah, it was that moment of, I was just such a sheer fan and, mm. and so happy to be there. Mm. So inspired to be there that, yeah, that was a moment that I sat back and went, I've made it. I'm cool. There you I'm go. I'm good. There you go. I'm good. Check, yeah. please. <laughs> if, if if Bruce would have offered you the, the gig in the E Street Band, would you have taken it? I mean, because this is like 2005, 2006. Uh, no, this was probably two, uh, 2011. Oh, 2011. Two, okay. Yeah. So you've had, uh, you've had uh, many records out. You've had yeah. a pretty well-known solo career, especially in the, the pop jazz side of things we'll talk about that in a second yeah. but uh but uh what, what do you think would you have gone on tour and been been part of the e street band forever you know what there there are very because you would have had to basically sell your soul you know oh yeah you'd be in the e street band forever oh, yeah there are very few bands that i would take off from my band and play with mm-hmm. you know aerosmith i took off for a summer yeah, and, that's right. and played with them i couldn't say no to that um the only people i'd I'd do that for would be Bruce Springsteen and and the Rolling Stones that yeah. I, and I'd do it in a heartbeat because yeah. it's just it's music that I just absolutely love you right. know and I absolutely would have said yes if if Bruce Springsteen would have asked um 
I totally think he made the right decision, though. Uh, you know, you know, Clarence's nephew. Yeah. You know, no, it's, that it, was it, supposed it's, to be. It's almost like the ghost is there. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. I it, dig him. It. It really. I mean, how do you? Right. How do you work that? I oh. mean, that's like really. This yeah, kid was. This kid was in the background waiting. I mean, yeah, it's, Jake it's, was always there. That's crazy. That's but that's kind of. He was about. the perfect guy, yeah, you know. Yeah. But just to have a chance to right. stand right. in those shoes. Yeah. Yeah. For one for night, right. it was right. Right. magical. Right. Right. Magical. I mean, you know, some musicians uh, who play saxophone, you know, they'd be like, I would do anything to play with John Coltrane for a night, you know. Not me. It's got to be a rocker, you know. So for Springsteen to do that, that was just, you know, that, um, I'm done. I'm cool. Well, I made it. <laughs> you, you, you made the great transition into my next question, which is, you know, yeah, you you you, you come across as a rocker girl, you know, and um but that's not what you started off in your solo work. You were more like smooth jazz. Um, yeah. How did that come to be? You know, uh, my first record that I put out, um, it was in 99 mm -hmm. and it was an indie record, you know, and uh, I played sax for one solo on one of the songs. So it was it was a pop rock record with me singing on everything uh, with songs that I wrote and it was interesting, you know, after that, I went on the road with Backstreet Boys and Mandy Moore and it came off and I got interest from Verve Records, which is more of a jazz label. Yeah. Well, uh, also Frank Zappa was on Verve. Oh, uh, and uh, good yeah, good <laughs> so, so that was a very short period in the 60s. They, right. I think they th said, hey, maybe we should check out this rock and roll thing. Let's but, be cool but yes, for they're, a second. They're yeah. primarily a jazz uh, record. They were, yeah. yeah. And uh, he came up and he's like, you know, uh, the A&R guy from Verve Records, he came up at a show and just went, I'd like to sign you. I think, you know, if we made a record really featuring you on saxophone and doing this, you know, I think you'd be really successful. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went off and, and in some of my free time, I really I, I made some demos of me as a sax player. You know, what would that sound like? And it was very poppy. You know, it was very acoustic guitar and drum loops and, you know, stuff that was happening then. And, uh, boy, the one, they loved it, you know, and he signed it. Mm -hmm. And we were in the studio making a record, you know, in, in like the next month. Um, but the one kind of outlet for instrumental music that's radio is smooth jazz. So that is who started playing my music, mm -hmm. you know, and they seemingly liked it because it was a little different, you know, it was like acoustic guitar or, you know, uh, electric guitar that wasn't, you know, too fluffy. Uh, but I was kind of the, the rocker of the smooth jazz world, <laughs> which isn't saying much, but I did really love doing that stuff, you know, and it was mm -hmm. really melodic mm -hmm. and uh, it was definitely pop rock you know, harmonically based. Yeah. Um, it was never jazzy, you know. I think mm -hmm. maybe we did one or two songs that were kind of harmonically more structured towards jazz, but it was definitely a more pop rock, you know, uh, driven uh, kind of harmony base. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like I was the lead singer of a pop band with my saxophone for probably the first five or six records, you know. And it wasn't until then that I just really went – 
God, I've, I, I've got to bring these other parts of me in. I grew up with rock and roll. Mm. On my off time, I'm sitting in with my rocker friends, Waddy Wachtel. I was going to say, and... Waddy Wachtel was one of them. So, yeah. Because for 15 years, you've been playing with him, right? Yeah. I mean, we started in Adam Sandler's band. He hired me for mm. Adam's band. And, you know, ever since then, I'd go sit in with his band and then became a part of his band. And, you know, it was, it was uh, even for for Aerosmith it's like Steven Tyler wanted to hire me because he had seen me on American, on American Idol, Idol and yeah. worked with me yeah. now let's talk but, about that for a second Joe so Perry you, didn't want to hire someone from American Idol he didn't know me he's right. like Steven's hiring Steven's, this crazy oh, person his, his from, that damn American Idol thing that he did yeah which I knew right. didn't make them get along great at the time but uh, then you know Joe calls Waddy Wachtel and goes who's the rocker you know saxophone player that I should get and he was like the guy, Mindy the girl, Hebert. the girl Steven's talking to. Yeah, and, and so it was like, oh, okay, well, this can happen then. Okay, so it, it, it worked uh, out to. You got the seal of approval. I got the basically. seal of approval from from you know the king of all rockers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So um, yeah. You, I, I guess you you met Steven on uh, American Idol when he was a judge, and yeah. you were a featured player uh, yeah. with uh, with that. What was the experience like of doing that uh, weekly television show? Uh, it's crazy. Know, I guess twice. A night, uh, twice a week. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I believe it's live on the East Coast. Oh, it's and, live. Yeah, and oh, yeah. Uh, you got to get out there in front of uh, eighty million people. Something you know? like that. Yeah. yeah. Is that pretty crazy? Don't screw it up. <laughs> yeah. Don't screw it up. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. I first got the call from Don Was. And, you did okay. And Don called and and left me a message and he's like, real nonchalant. You know, I need a sax solo for old time rock and roll we're doing a cover for one of the contestants on american idol and uh, i'm producing it i think it'd be really cool for you to come in and play man you know he's like if you play the track you know they'll probably have you on the tv show and i think there's you know there's probably 30 million people watching every night <laughs> probably be good for your career right so uh, i don't know call me back oh my god i called him back and went yeah okay that mm. seems fun um, so I did it and they did put me on the TV show and yeah, it turned into two seasons of me doing the show. And I gotta say, what a cool thing to kind of break out of the bubble of being a solo artist. Like the From beauty. the smooth jazz sort of thing yeah. that you had been doing. Yeah. Even though you were you were you were still doing the rocker thing, but behind the scenes. I mean your your image and what, what the record company was selling was, it was completely smoother. different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now you're out there doing basically classic rock songs yeah. uh, every night with uh, you know, the contestant from Kalamazoo. Oh uh, wow. So that, it was that fun. must have been a lot of fun, Because right? you you know, you're in your little bubble as a solo artist and mm -hmm. I had immense success. You know, I had like 10 number Several, one yeah, hits, number and, one, yeah, you know, yeah. number one records. I, you mm -hmm. know, and it's great. I could go out and be on the road and rock out with my band live. It was mm -hmm. great. But mm -hmm. you're right. What what I was sold as and what people saw it as was very, you know, the smooth, easygoing jazz stuff. So to be out of that bubble and to be a part of all these different contestants' careers and help them kind of find themselves and, and get to immerse in something completely different mm -hmm. was awesome. Yeah. And I loved it. And yeah. I, I loved being a part of it. And it I think it really helped me open up and and be able to morph and and be proud of it and be able to morph and and say no this is this is real i need to grow yeah. and i need to remember what i grew up your doing. roots right yeah right. and i need to find a way to bring all those parts of myself 
into my everyday because mm-hmm. I wasn't. I was so fragmented. You know, I would go off and do my band and that'd be this contemporary jazz wonderland um, where we were rocking out, but, you know, only so much. But, you know, I go off with Aerosmith or American Idol and it's a whole different level of abandon right. and a whole different level of grit and and fun. And so I really I, – I went on a mission after that to bring it to my own career. And and I did. <laughs> well, so let's talk about your current incarnation, Mindy, yeah. a bear and the bone shakers. Um, how did that come about? How did you put that together? I think you and, and Randy were, were, uh, Randy, were long-time Randy Jacobs were, were longtime friends. Right? Yeah. Well, after American Idol and, and Aerosmith and, and Bruce Springsteen, I really I made a concerted effort. OK, I'm going to bring all of me to this next record. I am going to. Uh, I'm going to figure it out, however that works, right? So I asked Joe Perry to play on a track. Yeah. And I asked Waddy to write a track with me and play. Mm-hmm. And Max Weinberg came in for a track. And mm-hmm. Booker T. Jones and I wrote a couple songs together and he played. Greg Allman and I spent three days at his house writing and recorded a song together and sang it together on the record. I mean, it was like... I just employed all the people that I knew that I had worked with them. Mm-hmm. But they'd never worked with me <clears throat> and they helped me. And, Very nice. Yeah. And they helped me make a record that was more me, I thought. Mm-hmm. And it, it encompassed a lot more of me than than we had been. And when I went to bring that record live, that record was called Wild Heart. When I went to, to figure out what Wild Heart sounded like live, my band wasn't right for it. I needed the smooth jazz band. Yeah. Right. I needed like some oomph. Yeah. I needed some grit. Right. So I called Randy Jacobs, uh, who I had played with in Oliver Lieber's band years and years and years ago, mid nineties. And uh, I just said, Randy, I need you. Mm-hmm. You know, he was that just Detroit rock funk, just dirt. And, uh, so he came and started playing with us and, uh, you know, he's always had a band called the Bone Shakers, mm-hmm. uh, and that came out of Was Not Was and Bonnie Raitt's band. They were all playing in in her band and Was Not Was together, mm-hmm. and the Bone Shakers were cool. It was like blues rock, yeah. You know, and cut to a couple of years ago, half my band's playing in his band, the Bone Shakers, <laughs> and then he's playing with me. It just happened one night. I went to go sit in with his band because we were on the same uh, bill at a big festival, and it would it just took it to the next level. It was my guys, it was him, and we just, it was electric. It was, it was amazing. It felt so amazing. And I looked at him after the show. I was like, was that just, was that nuts? Was that as great as I thought it was? And he goes, yeah. And I I just went, I mean, maybe we just join forces. Maybe we, we actually bring it more blues rock. Like, let's not be scared. Mm-hmm. You know, we're probably going to turn off all the radio people that have played me for the last 15 years. But at a certain point, that was happiness. That was sheer joy right. every second right. of that. Yeah. Let's go after that. And he right. was like, I totally agree. So we became Mindy A. Bear and the Bone Shakers. Uh, the first record we did together was a live record that was recorded our very first gig together in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of ballsy, but it just kind of happened. <laughs> And uh, we just kept going on the road. We had so much fun. So we finally did our second record, which is a studio record, and brought in Kevin Shirley to produce and, Mm -hmm. you know, did it together in five days. We just, you know, pounded it out and just went for it 
I'm having the time of my life. This band is just immensely fun. And I feel like I'm giving a thousand percent of myself every night and it feels great. I'm so proud of it. And mm. I, I've definitely turned a corner from, you know, the, the contemporary jazz world um, to the blues and rock world. We're on the blues. We're number nine on the blues charts, you know, Billboard Blues. This, oh, this congratulations. Week. Yeah, yeah, it's like um, couldn't be happier that, mm-hmm. you know, that we're on the chart with people like, you know, Buddy Guy and, right. you know, I mean, right. come on. Yeah. So it, it's been fun musically and it's it's just been an adventure. Mm-hmm. I love it. So you, you've had a couple of Grammy nominations and yeah. you actually uh, have done work for the Grammys. In fact, I think you're still doing work for the Grammys. Talk a little bit about that. I started volunteering uh, for the, you know, the Recording Academy years ago. I just, I don't know, I always wanted a way to give back uh, as a musician and as a, a woman and as an artist, um, but I never quite knew how. You know, mm-hmm. um, but one of my friends was involved in a lot of charitable work and I always loved what he was doing. And I just said, well, how do you do that? How do you get involved? And he goes, well, actually, I'm a governor on the board of governors for the L.A. chapter of the Recording Academy. And you should run to be on the board and you could be a part of a lot of this. You know, I think you'd be great. And so I kind of found out more about it and I ran for the board, the board of governors. Yeah. And um, I got elected. And so here I was on the board of governors and, okay, so what do we do? And we started helping, you know, the Grammys have incredible outreaches that probably most people don't know about, but they're immense. I mean, there's something called the, you know, uh, Music Education Coalition Mm -hmm. that they do that is literally bringing every, uh, uh, you know, major player of people who do work to get music back in the schools together. Desperately needed. Desperately needed. It's like, forget all this fragmentation. Let's get one organization that's as powerful as the Grammys Mm -hmm. to bring all these people together and basically have this blue sky thinking of every kid in America is going to have access to a music program. Whatever that means, we're going to make it happen. And city by city, they're creating sustainable yeah, the arts uh, have really suffered in oh. the last 20, 30 years. It's it's pathetic. I mean, people yeah. talk uh, STEM, and I remind them that, no, it's STEAM. You know, you need the arts in there, too. Uh, Good for you. Got to have that. We do uh, We do some work with Little Kids Rock, which uh, provides instruments to uh, to school districts they're around amazing. the country. So, yeah, yeah, and they're a part of the Grammy Music Education yeah, they, Coalition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's so desperately needed. It should, it we shouldn't be in these sort of desperate situations situations but you know when you think america is is in this sort of it's it's, it's crazy the wrong but, thing to give up the yeah. arts is the wrong thing so that's what drew me into the organization just my love of that and uh, i became the president of the la chapter mm-hmm. after a while and um, now i'm a national trustee mm-hmm. and so uh you know i i just i think we should all use our powers for good mm-hmm. and whatever time we do have you know, try and give back and try and make our industry better and try and give kids a, a chance to grow up and, and be musicians and, and have the opportunities that you and I did because we had music in yeah. our school program. Mm-hmm. It's like, do whatever you can to, to further this industry that, you know, obviously does a lot of great stuff. So uh, <laughs> just to add on to your your uh, CV here, your resume, in 2010, you wrote a book called how to Play Madison Square Garden, a guide to stage performance uh, with your father, Lance Bear and Ross Cooper. Um, 
Why did you feel the need to put down on paper what it takes to be a great performer? Who knows? Um. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, we, we talked to Grammys. You, you're, you've got a solo career. You're doing Aerosmith work. And now you say, oh, well, geez, let's add a book to this. I'm apparently yes. <laughs> bored easily. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I went through this immense music school. You yeah, know, Berkeley, Berkeley College of Music mm-hmm. is easily the number one contemporary music college in, in the world. One thing they didn't teach us, though, was how to be on stage. Hmm. You know, I, I had private lessons for how to play my instrument yeah. or I had theory lessons of, you know, how music works in the building blocks or how to compose music and, and what, you know, what, what to think about there. Um, you know, film composing classes and how to play in a band and, you know, integrate as a team, you know, that kind of stuff. What I didn't learn was how to create a you know, a persona on stage or a show on stage that people are going to get to know you and that you're going to be able to have people want to buy a ticket the next time. Because, I mean, at this point... You mean you weren't born with this fury (laughs) stage presence that I've got to enjoy a couple of times? No, I was not born with that. (laughs) But I think people think if they see this great performer that, well, they have some it factor that just I don't have, so... They can do that. Right. You know, Prince was just born with it. No, Prince studied a bunch of people to become what Prince was. Yeah. James Brown. Uh, yeah. Michael Jimmy Jackson, Hendrix. Jimmy Hendrix. Uh, little yeah. Michael Jackson. Yeah. You, if you, if you, if you look, yeah. Little Richard. Yeah. Yeah. And you can go, oh, yeah. Oh, there are the pieces. Right. 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 But I really thought to myself, you know, I've spent my whole life out on the road, whether it was, you know, being like a kid, kid, a real small kid watching my dad's band or then watching the bands that my dad was putting together through my whole childhood and teenage years to the bands that I played in, which we made every mistake in the book. I've done everything wrong. You know, (laughs) I've watched the guys in my band stage dive with a wired mic, you know, and get wrapped up in it and, and, you know, writhing around on the ground like an idiot while people are spilling beers on him. Very spinal tap. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so why wouldn't there be a book that would actually go through step by step kind of what it takes to create a a winning performance, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm not, you know, trying to say we all have to, you know, put on stage shows like Kiss or, you know, like Radiohead, but I'm saying find what's you. Right. And and develop that and Mm -hmm. make a really real, amazing connection with an audience in the way that is meaningful to your career and your music. I had never seen anything like that. And I thought I had a really specialized kind of set of eyeballs that had seen that for years and I had something to say. So I figured I'd say it. So, you know, kind of on my off time on the tour bus or something, I'd just be on my computer writing my book. And you know what? Oh, that that's a part of it. You know, or I'd be on stage one night and I'd think of another thing and I'd like, wait, eye contact. If I'm looking right at their eyes, this it's meaningful. I feel this connection. You feel. So I just kept writing things down. And it took me a few years and I got my dad involved and our friend Ross, and we all just came together with different parts of it. And sure enough, now there's kind of a textbook. It's it's a fun textbook. It's not like textbooky, but uh, it's it's at least in black and white kind of an approach to forming a right. bond with an audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. So, are you working on another book? Not yet. 
There may be another one coming up. Who so. knows? I, I mean, that one kind of came out of the blue. It's not like I ever thought I should be an author. Right. But right. things do, you know, kind of uh, happen. Come, and Yeah, it just kind of happens. Yeah, you're kind of a determined person. If, I think if it happens, if you go, hmm, I should do this, it, chances are it gets done. So Yeah. Yeah, I'm that person. Like, oh, I should do that. Okay, I'll figure out a way. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and let me add one more thing. You've actually done my job, too. Uh, from 2007 to 2015, you were oh, yeah. host of Chill Out with Mindia Bear. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Bodie started the uh, the chill show. So it was, it was chill with Chris Bodie. And uh, his career just, you know, exploded. exploded. Right? And, and so he wanted to hand it off. And so I co-hosted it for a little bit with him. And then took it over. But I had fun kind of just getting to know that music. Mm -hmm. It wasn't music that I grew up with, you know, chill music. It's mm -hmm. kind of that electronic-based music that if you're sitting, you know, in the uh, a, a cool hotel in Paris or something, you know, you're sipping a martini to it. Um, so it was fun for me to kind of get to know different musicians and kind of people who were a little cutting edge with the atmospheric music. I, I thought it was really cool. Mm -hmm. And Verve, the record label I was on for three records, you know, they were doing these remixed records. With oh, these so they must have loved cool it. Cool yeah. DJs yeah. and, mm -hmm. you know, putting like Nina Simone or, you know, someone, uh, someone cool that was an old jazz singer along with these new DJs doing mm -hmm. remixes of these cool old standards. And I, I loved that stuff. So, yeah, I, I did it for a while. And, yeah, respect to you guys who are our radio, you know, just veterans. It is not an easy gig. It is, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to learn. And, Did you do yeah, a fair amount of interviews? Uh, no, I didn't just, do. Just uh, yeah. playlists and, and and talk about the music and the, the players that were doing that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would love to do something in the future where it would be more interview driven. Mm. Like I love, I, I love the idea of getting more behind the scenes with people kind of like we're doing today. Because I just think, you know, we've got Spotify and we've got, Apple Music and we've got, you know, all these ways to get music now and it's just everywhere. Mm -hmm. But to to feel a real personal connection with someone, it's it's rough, you mm -hmm. know? It's like I know we've got all these ways to get into people's head, you know, via Instagram and social media and Facebook, but I think it is nice to sit and and have someone tell their story and and actually um get inside their head a little bit. It seems it it seems useful for me. I like it. <laughs> Mindy Bear's podcast coming soon. <laughs> so it's pretty common knowledge that income path for most musicians today is touring. Yeah, um, sure. you know the records and the the what you what you get back for the records are certainly not like the good old days uh, <sighs> pre pre Napster pre Internet. Uh, but um, so. How is it uh, touring on the road these days? Is it is it better or worse or the same as when you began? You know, it, it's interesting that, you know, you bring up the, the streams of income. When I first started making records and, and was on the radio, I mean, it paid money. Yeah, you know, yeah. CD sales paid yeah. money. Mm -hmm. And um, and if you had a radio hit and I had a bunch of number ones in the, in the jazz world, they paid, you know, and you got royalties. So now that I'm actually much more popular and have a lot more behind me and have way more followers, my royalties since I started have probably gone down 95%. 95%. Yeah. And that's 
there's no way to make a living. It's staggering, isn't it? Yeah. And and it's not just me. It's oh, yeah. everyone yeah. I know oh, yeah. in this mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. You know, the world has changed exponentially with how to get music into people's ears, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it's amazing. Technology has to move like that. Yeah. It's it's incredible. Yeah. But unfortunately, laws for copyrights and intellectual property for those of us who write songs and record songs have not changed that quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's really damaging the music industry. It's really damaging the people who create music. And I fight for that a lot. I, you know, I go to Capitol Hill and I lobby for artists' rights and people who create music. But it's hard. Um, so, yeah, that that one thing that we can count on is touring. Right. And, uh, you know, I love being out on the road. Works great for me because that's where I'm totally at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... Uh, everyone's doing it now because uh, they have to. That's the only way to make a living. Yeah, I even look at, you know, people like Booker T. Jones, who's an icon to me. I'm a total uh, super fan of his. Yeah, who's like 80 years old. Yeah, he's, I believe he's 72 or 73. Oh, And he's still out there on the road just going for it. Same Mm -hmm. thing with Buddy Guy, you know, Mm -hmm. he's he's probably 80 five or something like uh, that. I mean, well, you're it, never going to pull it, buddy guy off the road. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I I can't tell you if they just want to be out there or if they have to be. Right. But I mean, I think in ways they have to be because they're not making money off the music. You know, there's loopholes that a bunch of Booker stuff, he doesn't get paid on it because it was before 1976. So he doesn't get paid anything. Oh, yeah. And then all the those records he stuff, right? played mm-hmm. on for the mm-hmm. Sax records. Mm-hmm. If you played on a record, even if you're the, the sole artist, if you didn't write it, you don't get paid anything if it plays on the radio. Yeah. So even though Booker T. Jones played on like half of the songbook of American music, mm-hmm. you don't get paid a dime from that. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a problem, you know, and definitely – we need to change some of those laws. But until then, yeah, it's all about live, baby. <laughs> it's all about being out there. Well, is is, is the live experience is the, you know, the and, and, and I mean the 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 production, the getting there, uh, the, the the process, the backstage. Is that better today than it was back uh, 20 years ago? Is it exactly the same? It's exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the same. And my band's interesting, you know, I mean. Uh, definitely people like Aerosmith or Bruce Springsteen, you know, they, they've got their whole city that they just go around with yeah, and yeah. and tour with. And, you know, they kind of keep their their whole thing the same in arenas. But, uh, you know, for my band, I mean, we played uh, City Winery this this week, which, you know, was probably 300 or 400 that was, people. That was up in Canada. Right? Uh, that was up in Chicago. Oh, Chicago. Uh, and then, Chicago. you know, the next night we're playing to 8000 people at a huge festival up in up in Thunder Bay in Canada. So, I mean, it, it's really wild. We played a barn a couple of weeks ago in upstate New York that was just this huge open barn that just hundreds of people came out and they're drinking and smoking and partying and dancing. And I'm like, guys, we're playing a barn. This is crazy, you know, but then, you know, the next day we're playing some huge festival to, mm-hmm. you know, 5,000 people. So it's really varied. My band's experience on the road were really we kind of do it all and mm-hmm. it's it's fun but it's it's definitely odd <laughs> so if, if you were fresh out of berkeley today uh what would you do different knowing what you know now wow oh, that's a great question huh um 
boy, I don't know. I don't know if what I would have done would have changed my path, you mm-hmm. know, because um, I was definitely very willful and, and uh, you know, uh, I wanted I wanted to be in this music business. No one was going to keep me out of it. You know, I was Apparently. music. <laughs> one yeah. way or another. One way or another. Or several ways. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't say no forever. Um, I would figure out a way. Uh, but, yeah, I think... I, I wish I wasn't so green, you know, it's like some people grew up in the business or grew up with parents who kind of knew people or, mm. or knew how to do things. You know, I, I wish that I had some of that knowledge, you know, that I could have streamlined uh, my experience a little bit because, boy, I was just from a small town in Florida. I didn't know Jack, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know how the business worked. I didn't know anything like that so it was definitely me making every mistake on the way up you know just falling down two stairs to then climb up one stair and um it was all really heartfelt but it it wasn't very um smart Mm -hmm. you know so i i don't know how i could have made that happen any differently but I, i did the best i could but yeah i think i i would probably try to to do it a little smarter instead of just kind of uh, finding my way there on on a crazy journey, but I, I like I, my journey. I really have I, fun. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I you know, listening to you today, um, you know, I, I think you put the hours in. Um, you worked very hard at it. You then were insanely determined to to make this work, and you know, uh, you you know, you you got some opportunities and when those when those when those doors opened, you walked through them and mm-hmm. and set yourself to the next one. But at the same time, you re- remained passionate about what it is you were doing. Yeah. And I think those are the kind of things that um, you just you just have to have to to make it in a in a difficult business like like the music industry. So take a look at the at, at, at the music the the business today and the foreseeable future from your perspective yeah. what advice would you give a young talent out there trying to get in it you know what you just said is is so telltale you know it's like you you really do have to have this um passion for it and and the passion has to make you a little crazy to to go out there and, and really um, so you have to be a little crazy. You have to be a little crazy, I think, you know. But you, you really do just have to go out there and be out there and mm. do it and, mm. and do the work. And I, I know people ask me all the time, well, how do you, you know, how do you become successful in this in in this music industry? Um, and I, I always go back to when I was in high school. I, um, I'll tell you a little short story about um, – me wanting something. I wanted to be in the Allstate, the Florida Allstate Jazz Band. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was 17, it was like, you know, you could either play in the symphonic band or you could play in the jazz band. There was no rock band to be had or I would have gone for that. <laughs> but I was like, well, the jazz kids are cooler than those symphonic <laughs> dorks over there. So let's do that. So I practiced, you know, there was an audition process and I was practicing these jazz songs and, you know, uh, and I finally, it it dawned on me that every other kid in Florida was going for the same thing and that there were probably 50 guys or girls out there who were going to, you know, mostly guys, mostly guys, Mm. chew me up and spit me out Mm. and just really, you thought you had a chance at that. We're way better than you. And so I finally just stopped practicing and I just like, I don't have a chance in hell at this. And uh, my father walked in a couple of days later and he's like, Hey, no saxophone. You've been 
playing a lot, but I haven't heard saxophone lately. And I explained the whole thing to him that I didn't have, you know, a chance on earth of ever getting one of the two spots for the Florida All-State Jazz Band. And he's like, well, yeah, I guess you could quit like that. All right, sure. And I didn't like that. I didn't want to be a quitter. Uh, so I went to do the audition and uh, and I got it. And I came back to my dad and I was like, oh, my God, dad, I, I got the first chair alto saxophone in the, you know, Florida jazz band. And he just looked at me and he smiled and he goes, you just learned a great lesson. You learned that sometimes it's not the most talented people that get what they want, but it's the people who put themselves out there. He goes, not that they're not the most talented people, but he goes, a lot of times people sit home because they don't believe in themselves or they don't think they have a shot or they don't think they're the right fit or that they have a chance. But he goes, you just went out there and gave yourself a shot and you won't always get it, but you'll get it a lot more times than not. And I thought that was like the best advice to get early on. And I've always used that and I haven't gotten everything I wanted to get, but I've gotten a lot. And you know, if, if you're starting out in this business, I just say go for it. Like, mm -hmm. be out there and put yourself out on the line. You're totally going to fail. Uh, there were times I had my tail between my legs walking out of some jam session that I just completely wasn't right for. Or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Yeah. All kinds yeah. of situations. But I would always try for stuff. And, and I, th I think it's a great way to go. So what's next for Mindy Bear? Uh, well... See, I got a new place to live. I'm a Northern California girl now. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. We're we're recording a record um, in the next couple of weeks in Oakland. Uh, it's a Christmas record, so it'll be a Mindy A. Bear and the Bone Shakers Christmas record, and it's it's bluesy and it's rootsy and it's fun and it's uh, Red Red Rudolph, right? Run Run Red Rudolph, Red. we did last year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's gonna that's gonna be on this record too. We'll we'll put it out as part of the whole thing, mm -hmm. and. Uh, yeah, we're just we're having fun making new music and we're just staying out on the road the whole rest of the year. We got dates throughout the year. So we're yeah, just going to be looks like you have a busy calendar. Yeah, we're going to be road dogs well. and then take our Christmas record on the road and then uh, make our next record. So our, our next full length record will be, uh, um, you know, probably first quarter of next year. It'll come out. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Never well, stop. Just keep making just music. Keep on. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock. I had a great time. No, thanks for coming here. I think it's great. I love talking with you. And I just, I love the idea that you get out cool stories and rock and roll and music. And that's, that's important. It inspires me to listen to that stuff. So thanks for inspiring all of us with cool stories. I'm well, really happy to be you. on. Thank you. Mindy is a wickedly talented sax player. She's an author, has been a radio host, and I think she's just getting started. I mean, oh, what do you expect in a magna cum laude graduate from Berkeley School of Music? Catch Mindy Bear and the Bone Shakers out on the road. Uh, pick up their latest album wherever you get great music.
And if you are a performer and want to know what it truly takes to be a star on stage, pick up her 2011 book, How to Play Madison Square Garden. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs and Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Hey, drop me a line sometime. Oh, and keep up the rockin'. Starting to show Always another town And another show Many more places left That I must go I've tried to make the most Of this one life Worked being a daughter Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 